0: All right, Isaiah chapter 53 is where we're at this evening, and I'll tell you, this right here is probably my favorite passage from the Old Testament, if not the Bible. This is just, I think, this chapter of the Bible, it says so much, it proves so much. I think this chapter of the Bible proves the Bible is the Word of God. Just the fact that since the time of Christ, you know, copies... Of This passage have been found that predate the time of Christ. It's just it's proof without any shadow of a doubt that uh, The Bible is prophetic. You can't make this stuff up, you know, and the things that Jesus fulfilled uh, Could not have happened by accident and you couldn't have forced these things to happen on purpose There's just no doubt this is the Word of God and also the fact that this passage is so prophetic but yet it is so beautiful At the same time, I think this is just one of the most beautifully written passages and there's just not enough good things I can say about it. But what I want to do this evening, I want to just kind of preach through this chapter, but then I want to throw out a challenge uh, to you after we go through this chapter. And so um, so when you read this passage, and as we go through this passage, something that I, I try to do, but at the same time, I really don't know how to do it is think. What, how would you have viewed this passage back in Isaiah's day? See, when you and I read this passage, we look at it and and we just love it. It is beautiful to us because we know exactly what it is saying. Because the New Testament is screaming out to us. The Gospels are screaming out to us. We're seeing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're seeing Jesus on the cross in this passage. But what would it have been like for them back in that day? You know, and it's just, it's hard for us to not see what has been revealed to us when we look at this, and so I don't know that I could fully comprehend how they would have viewed this back in their day, but it is something to just think about, meditate on a little bit sometimes. But what I want to do in this message is I want to talk about this passage, and then we're and I want to throw out a challenge. And so in verse one, notice what it says: "Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm?" of the Lord revealed. And you know, I go I said I was thinking about this as I was studying for this. If I ever just need something to preach and I can't think of what to preach, I could pretty much just go to Isaiah 53 and get a whole bunch of sermon ideas. I mean, if I ever just had to preach on a fly, if I was ever at a camp meeting or something, they're like, hey, just come preach and I wasn't prepared, I think I just open up to Isaiah 53. And there's absolutely so many things that we'll preach in this passage. But right here, this would be a good sermon on right here, on the arm of the Lord. What because what does that mean? To whom He says, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Well, I think this is a reference to what he talked about in the previous chapter. Look back one chapter in in chapter 52 in verse 7. It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him that bringeth good tidings. Good tidings in the Gospel are the same thing. It says, that publisheth peace and bringeth good tidings of good that publisheth salvation that saith unto Zion... Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together they shall sing. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted His people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of of our God. And notice when it's talking about how beautiful are the feet of them, that's referred to in Romans chapter 10. And we often talk about how when you go soul winning, that is your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And the Bible says your feet are beautiful. When we were, when you're going out there and you're preaching the gospel, I mean, you've got beautiful feet at that point. No one ever, I, my wife's told me I've got ugly feet before, but that's unbiblical. Alright, the Bible tells me I have beautiful feet when, I, when I'm out there preaching the gospel. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, argument i can win against her because i got bible right and uh some of you saw pictures of my bare feet you know you might be inclined to agree with her but i still got bible and and you know what because i'm a soul winner i got beautiful feet you know we we, always and uh, but anyway but this verse too notice what it says there in 52 how it says while it's talking about salvation while it's talking about good tidings while it's talking about pronouncing joy because of what God has done, it says the Lord hath made bare His holy arm in the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So the verse, it's clearly referring to those who are saved, that it's those who have believed on the work of Christ, who hath believed our report, to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed. And so when it talks about the Lord making bare His holy arm, that's His way of saying He's revealing His strength. And what is it that guys often do, you know, before if they want to try to intimidate somebody, you know, they they show that muscle, right? It's like you're gonna mess with me, you know, you see that. What 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 are they doing? I mean, they're trying to they're trying to show they've got the strength, you know. After they go and they lift, you know, they lift that weight, you know, they'll they'll flex those muscles just showing. Yeah, that's how I was able to do that. You see those guns, you know, that, I mean that's a, that's a typical thing that you know guys do today. But when it comes to salvation. Well you could say that uh, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you could say that that passage, those scriptures, is making bare the holy arm of Jesus. Yeah. Why? Because those gospels reveal His holiness. Those gospels show us His work. The gospels show us how He brought salvation. And so this great work of bringing salvation that was prophesied to Israel, this salvation that was going to be brought to the whole world. You know who it was that brought it? It was Jesus. And you know what? He showed us His strength. He showed us what He was able to do in the Gospel. He's making bare His holy arm when He's healing the sick. He's making bare His holy arm when He's raising the dead, when He's preaching, when He's living a sinless life. And you you want to really know when the Lord really showed off His strength and showed what He was able to do when it comes to bringing salvation? When He took the beating on the cross. When He laid down His life for our sins, that was Him making bare His holy arm. He was showing, yes, I'm the one that's bringing salvation. I am the one that that there is hope in. And so in that passage, when it's saying, who hath believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord been revealed? Those who believe on Christ are people who understand. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. Jesus Christ is good enough. Jesus Christ did bring salvation. Jesus Christ gets all the glory. That person, you know what? The arm of the Lord has been revealed to them. Anyone who thinks that they can contribute to their own salvation, the arm of God has not been revealed to them. If they saw what He did, if they saw what He was capable of, they would understand immediately, I can't do that. And so right there... There's no doubt what that passage is talking about. And so when it asks that question, who believes our report? Okay, that's the most important question. What is it that we want to know? We want to know who, when people are saved. And so you know what we do? We ask them, what are you trusting in? If they're trusting in their arm, if they're trusting in their works, they're not saved. But if they start professing Jesus Christ, if they start talking about Him, the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them. They get it. And you know, this is just another example too, just showing Gospels in the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen. Believing on Christ is in the Old Testament. Obviously, it's not worded as clearly. It was in shadows. It was hidden. But now that it has been revealed, we can look at this. And folks, there's no doubt this is teaching, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. We can't look at the Isaiah 53 and not see the gospel. We can't look at Isaiah 53 and not see, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Will you show me where that's in the Old Testament? I can't help but not see it in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. That's what I see in chapter 53, verse 1. And so while you would have a certain expectation of what such a strong deliver would be like, Okay. It's talking about how the arm of the Lord has been revealed. In the previous chapter, it's saying the Lord is going to make bare His holy arm, and He's going to bring salvation. And then He asks, "Who hath believed our report?" And so, while it's been talking about the strong deliverer that's going to come, it then goes on in verse two to reveal to us that this deliverer that's going to come is not what you would expect. He's not. He, he didn't. He's not going to look like someone that you would expect him to look like. If you were to see, like maybe, uh, a, you know, have you ever seen some of those large dumbbells? You know, they have those challenges places if you can lift this dumbbell and all that. And if you saw one of those huge dumbbells, you know, and you found out that, hey, there was a guy that finally lifted that thing up, you would expect to see some huge dude, right? That's what you would expect to see. But then, you know, imagine it was just some little pipsqueak. Like, what, what? You know, that's not what I was expecting to see. You know, if I had to go find the guy in the room that did it, you're going to go look for the biggest guy. And the thing is, when it came to looking for the deliverer, there was what people would expect. But God said, it's not going to be what you expect. And it goes on in verse 2. It says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. So Jesus was somebody who looked like a completely average person. He was able to go unnoticed. That's another thing, too, that just shows us all these movie depictions, all these paintings of Jesus are just not biblical in any way, because we see, too, in the Bible that even though Jesus had been around Jerusalem and had been doing a ministry throughout Israel for over three years, when it came time for them to arrest Jesus, they had to have Judas identify him with a kiss because they didn't know which one he was. He looked just like an ordinary individual. And then, and so the thing is, we would expect him to be this Superman-looking figure, but that's not what he was. The Bible said he's not going to be like that. We would expect that this deliverer would be someone that everyone would love, that everyone would respect. But it says, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him he was despised and we esteemed him not so this mighty deliverer would be someone that most would not want to be associated with because of the fact that any association with him would cause you problems on earth there are there are people out there that because you know they're they're, they're always you know getting hammered you know maybe for good reasons or bad reasons you all of a sudden don't want to be associated with them okay and you know and i i've not looked deep into this story i have no opinion on the guilt or innocence but i've I've heard a lot of people talking about this andrew tate clown just because he says stuff that's (laughs) offensive to liberals okay and listen i like offending liberals but just because somebody offends liberals doesn't make him a good guy and you know and and i i saw some stuff with them and i'm just like the guy just seems kind of like a blowhard pretty much and so I just, I I lost interest after watching like one clip of the guy, okay? But I, I kept hearing people talk about him, and I saw this week he got like arrested for child trafficking or something, or get, they, I don't know if he did it or not. But anyway, the thing is, when I saw that, I was like, man, you know what? I'll bet all these people are not wanting to be associated with this guy now. I wouldn't want to be associated with a guy that does something like that. And I, let me just say about human traffickers, okay, we like to talk about the homos being the bottom of everything. Human traffickers are below them. Just understand, they are the worst of the worst. I feel like preaching a sermon just on that. Sometimes the Bible talks about men stealers. They are the ultimate low of lows. And listen, I don't care if Andrew Tate turns out to be a MAGA supporting, you know, American flag waving, you know, King James Bible thumping. If he's ever been involved in human trafficking, he should always be just hated. it. Because they are the worst of the worst. It doesn't get any worse than that. It really, it really doesn't. But either way, when, when those things happen, when, whenever the news media is all going after somebody, we typically don't, we don't want to get that attached to us. Now, sometimes it's for legitimate reasons. Like, you know, obviously you don't want to get associated with the human trafficker. But sometimes, too, it's good people getting attacked for things they shouldn't be attacked for. Jesus never did anything wrong. But yet he was despised and rejected, and any association would get you in trouble. Remember how Peter began to curse and swear? Because he got upset that people were recognizing him and identifying him with Christ when he was in all when Jesus was in all that trouble? And the Bible tells us that's how it's going to be with this Messiah. So he's not somebody that people are going to want to get connected to. He's not some popular guy that people are going to want to ride on their coattails or something like that. That's not who that's not who he's going to be. It says, Surely though. So even though this was somebody who was despised and rejected, even though he was going to be somebody that people would not want to be associated with, he was going to be somebody that people wouldn't want to turn away from. It says, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And often, when you see someone who is being punished or someone who is being hated on, you're naturally inclined to think the worst, aren't you? Just so kind of how we naturally are. For example, you know, whenever you see someone in the back of a police car, we typically think negative of that person. Oh, busted, you know? You know, when you see him pulled over, and it is. It, it, isn't it embarrassing when you're pulled over? First time I ever got a speeding ticket, I got pulled over. I was coming back from a conference. And, and I remember we're on our way back. A bunch of people from our church went. And I remember I'm pulled over. And I knew there was people from our church that were behind us a ways. And I kept thinking, please let me go before they get here. Please let me go before they get here. And it didn't happen. I was there pulled over. And not only did all these people from our church see me pulled over, they pulled off at a gas station and stood out there and watched. <laughs> yeah. And so it was just like, uh, yeah. It was, it was very embarrassing. And, you know, n- nobody likes that. You know, you see police arrest, you see him getting handcuffed. But, you know, just because somebody's getting handcuffed doesn't mean they're a bad guy. You know, we've seen the videos of the people taking that walk of shame where they're handcuffed and the policeman pushes their head down as they go in the car. That, that's humiliating. It's embarrassing. And we naturally think negative. And so Jesus, even when he's being crucified, he's being, a lot of people don't know who he is when they're seeing him hang there. They don't know what he did. But when you see a man hanging on a cross, you just assume the worst. You just assume he's a criminal. You think all these negative things of him. And that's what people are thinking about, you know, with Christ. When somebody's wearing an orange jumpsuit, picking up trash on the side of the road, what do you think? You know, you just want to roll down your window. You do the crime, you do the time. But maybe they were falsely accused, you know. But that's not what we think. So no matter what, even if you're, if you're in jail or you're in prison or whatever, even if you're innocent, it's humiliating, isn't it? It's a humiliating thing. And we are naturally inclined to distance ourselves from those people. And being arrested, "It's always humiliating." But in verse five, so after it basically talks about this with Christ, he we esteemed him, you know, smitten of God, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But because the truth is, people saw him being smitten of God, and in the and in the reality was, while people saw Jesus as being punished for sin. Being punished for crimes, punished for wickedness, smitten of God, while people are walking by and cursing Him. Understand, He was smitten of God. He was stricken and smitten of God, but it wasn't for His sin, was it? But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we, we are healed. And so it turns out everything that happened to Jesus was, in fact, God's justice being done. It's just wasn't about his sin. It was about our sin. Everything that was happening on the cross to Jesus was justice. It's just, but it was for us. That was what we deserved. That was our just punishment being put on him. And that's what this passage is telling us without a doubt. That it's crystal clear to us exactly what this is talking about. This guy that the Bible is talking about, that the prophet is talking about is taking our punishment for us. He's getting what we deserve. And so think about how many people looked at Jesus with disgust as they walked by the cross. The Bible talks about those passing by and they're wagging their heads. People spitting on him. All the horrible things they were thinking about Jesus as they passed by, as He's hanging there in our place. But just understand, the disgust people had for what was hanging on that cross, in reality, was what they should have felt. But again, because that's how we should feel about our sin. That's how bad our sin really is. That's what our sin is deserves it deserves a beating like that it deserves humiliation like that and so it was unjust in the fact that they're seeing this with on jesus christ but if the truth is what was there on the cross represented something that was truly disgusting and worthy of shame and spitting jesus was not worthy of shame and spitting but we are worthy of the shame. And spitting. So, you know, and imagine, too, seeing a SWAT team, you know, surround your neighbor's house. Because you know, th- th- this is what we should see when we look at Jesus on the cross. Imagine if you were just looking out, you looked outside one day and all of a sudden you saw a bunch of SWAT team just pull up to the house, cross the street from you. You saw them getting all ready. They're surrounding the place. They got their guns out. They got, the, they're getting ready to go. Fuss through the door. You watch the whole process. Okay, I would be watching that if that happened at my neighbor's house. And what are we all going to be doing? We be all thinking, man, what did they do? What are they getting busted for? And you do. You see them go through and maybe they come out of the house and they, they pull the guy out. They pull the people out. They throw him on the ground. They handcuff them. Maybe rough them up a little bit. And then all of a sudden you see a bunch of talking and stuff going on out there. And you are, you're thinking, man, I had no idea our neighbor was so bad. I wonder what he did. And then all of a sudden you hear some talking and then you see him like talking to the police and pointing over at your house, and then all of a sudden you figure out, oh man, the SWAT team went to the wrong house. That's me. I'm the one that they're going to go after. And the truth is, that's what we're supposed to see when we look at Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, He's not the one that should have gotten that. That should have been us. And just like we would all of a sudden get real scared if we realized what they just did to that guy, that was actually supposed to be done to us, and now they're coming for me. Just like that should say it, it should cause us to just be a little bit freaked out by our own sins that all that stuff that happened to him, that was supposed to be done to me. Now, thankfully, it's not going to be done to us. Amen. It doesn't have to be done to us. Right. But just, just think about it that way. This is what we're supposed to see when we're looking at Jesus on the cross. This, that was our punishment. And so in verse 6, he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what was being carried on that cross was something that should cause us shame. It was something that should cause disgust. And the truth is, if we were on that cross, it would be just. If we were on that cross, people should rightfully wag their heads. They should be disgusted. They should want to spit on us. If, if, If it was us on that cross, and we do. We under and a lot of times we look at these people as though they're so horrible that that did all that because of the fact that they were doing it to Jesus. But at the same time too, and I'm not saying these were good, these were these were bad people, but understand their reaction to what was hanging on that cross was in many ways an appropriate reaction because that was that was our sin hanging on that cross. And Jesus said, "Father, forgive them for they know not what they do." They didn't realize who it was they were actually condemning. You know, it, but it, the thing is, if the right person would have been on the cross, all their behavior would have been appropriate. What was wrong is just the fact that it was Jesus on that cross. And so what we we when we look at that, it should cause us shame. When we read about the crucifixion, we should feel shame. And we should also feel relief that, It wasn't us that it happened to. Because let me tell you something. If we would have had to go to the cross, we would have received the exact same payment that Jesus made for our sins. We would have died and we would have gone to hell. That's exactly what would have happened. Now here, and people, they do, and I've talked about this before. They're always trying to figure out how to make an eternity in hell for three days. You don't have to do that because you, you don't have to do that at all the penalty is death here's the problem about us paying the penalty death for our sins is we can't come back from it you know when when if we die in our sins we will never get out of hell jesus did in fact die for our sins but because he was jesus because he was innocent he was able to get out of hell he had the power to conquer death and hell so you know he did go to hell we don't have to make it an eternity it, it was just three days. He was dead for three days. And he paid the consequences for sin on the cross and he died. And he was dead for three days. You and I, we could have paid the consequences for sin, but we'd still be dead. And that, that's the difference right there. We would still be dead. And in the exact same position, Jesus was for three days, but we would be there for all eternity because we would never have the power to get out of there. And so that's what happened with Jesus. A very important thing to understand. And, you know, the arguments that people come up with to try to deny that his soul was made an offering for sin are really bizarre. But sometimes, too, they're inspired by people trying to force things into three days that aren't there. You know, we don't want to say dumb stuff on our side either. And sometimes people say, Dumb things, but, you know, that, that's alright. So, verse 7, it says, He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so open He not His mouth. Now, why, what's, what's interesting about that, and why does the Bible mention that too? Because the truth is, Jesus actually was acting exactly the way a guilty person would act because the truth is if all of a sudden i'm getting arrested you know i mean you know what now what did i do when i got pulled over and you know i got that ticket in front of all those people from our church you know i immediately pulled into the gas station you know what i just got a ticket for speed you know i wasn't you know you you want to explain to people what happened you know if i got arrested and there was a video of me getting put in the back of a police car i'm going to want to explain to everybody what happened you know why because i'm innocent you know, I remember one time I got, I, I, I uh, my car broke down when I was on my way to work. It was really early in the morning, when so I was working at the distribution center in Spring Valley, and I remember a policeman pulled up, you know, to help me out. And my car was broke down; it wasn't going anywhere. I had to call a tow truck. Called a tow truck; they came, and we were real close to where I worked. And so he told me he would just drive me in there, and he had me go get in the back of the police car. And it was cold, it was winter, it was snowing. And I was like, ah, oh, I don't know. And you know, I, I didn't really like the idea of that, but I didn't really have much of a choice. And so he did. I got, and as I'm getting in the back of the police car, all these coworkers of mine are driving by. <laughs> and then I remember I went, you know, he pulls in there, and people see the police car come in, they see me go. And, and you know, and it was one of those things where I was real popular that day, you know. And, okay. Everybody was coming up talking to me, but nobody would say, hey, what happened this morning? Nobody, everybody was talking to me that day and not one person said, hey, what happened this morning? Hey, how's it going? I think they were just hoping I would tell them. And finally I got sick of it. I was like, you want to know what happened this morning, don't you? (laughs) And and I didn't. I kind of wanted to tell everybody. I wasn't in trouble. My car just broke down. The policeman gave me a ride. Because I looked guilty. You always look guilty when you get put in the back of a police car. And so as Jesus is being put on trial, as Jesus is being humiliated, as he's being stripped down, as he's being nailed to a cross. I mean, it would only, it would only seem natural for him to say, hey, this isn't because of my sin, I'm doing this for you. But you know what he did? He took the shame. He took the spitting. He took the beating. He did exactly what a guilty person should do. Whenever your kids do something wrong, and you know, you need to give them a spanking or something, you don't want them arguing with you the whole time. You want them to accept the punishment. That's what a guilty person should do when they realize their guilt, when they realize they're wrong. You know what they should do? They should take their punishment. But, you know, people who are in rebellion and can't admit it, what do they do? They want to fight it. They want to justify it. They want to try to claim innocence. Jesus could have done all those things, but what does He do? He just goes like a lamb to the slaughter. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't defend Himself. You know why? Because He is He's taking on... Man's sin, and let me tell you, there is no defense for our sin. There, there is no defense. And so he went to that cross silent as a guilty man, taking our shame, doing absolutely nothing to remove that shame from himself. Not explained to anybody, this is for you. This isn't about me. He took it. Folks, that's an amazing thing right there. That's ex- that was an amazing thing. So verse 8 says, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so right there, we do, we see, and this is beyond what we can fathom. Because it's interesting too, how in the Bible, you know, it does, it spends a lot of time explaining his life, it spends a lot of time talking about the cross, and as it should. Because again, the payment for sin was made in the body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was, in fact, paying for our sin on that cross. And Jesus Christ fully paid for our sin at the point when he died. When, you know, there's a lot of things that we can take, but it's when it takes you to death, that's, that's the ultimate right there. Because you and I can't come back from that. And Jesus did. Jesus paid for our sins in his body on the cross and then the Bible talks about his soul being made an offering for sin. Now, again, why doesn't it describe that as much? Well, the thing is, we can understand pain. We can, you know, we've all dealt with physical things. But, folks, the things about hell, not only can we not fathom that, but at the same time, too, if you're saved, you don't need to, really, you don't really need to. We'll never experience it. We'll never know what it's like. Oh, well, what about the people that don't get saved? They should have believed. You know, they should have have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They should have trusted what he said. And so the Bible doesn't talk, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a ton of insight into what hell's like. But let me tell you, it tells us enough. It tells us enough that uh, we ought to do everything, you know, do not everything, but exactly what is necessary to avoid it, and that's believe on Christ. And so when it talks about, too, how yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him right there you know what that is that's john three sixteen. it pleased the lord to bruise him what what would bring god any pleasure at all to do something like that to his own son and the reason it brought him pleasure is because for god so loved the world even though we were sinful god still looked at us he still loved us and he knew the only way to bring salvation is for his son to go and to be stricken and smitten of God. And it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased him for us. And so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, we can't even fathom that kind of love right there. That's that's a love that's beyond anything that we're even capable of. And we'll we'll never fully understand it. I don't even know. If we'll, can we fully understand when we're in heaven? I don't know. This brain can't fathom that that kind of love. But yet, that is exactly what God did for us. And it says in verse eleven, He shall see the travail of His soul. He shall be and 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 shall be satisfied. Okay, who's going to see the travail of whose soul? God's going to see the travail of the son of His soul uh, of the soul of His Son. And God's going to be satisfied. This was enough. That His payment that he made, his suffering was enough. He's dead. His soul has been made an offering. He's suffering. It's been enough. And it says, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his uh, and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. And so, folks, this is why we're going to heaven. And this is, this is why it's wicked to think that salvation is by works or by us just repenting of enough sins or reforming our life. This is why it's so misguided and ignorant and misleading to go around questioning the salvation of professing believers. People who are professing faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ just because they are not living exactly the way they should. The Bible tells us that God saw the travail of His soul and God was satisfied. God looked at what Jesus did and He's like, I'm satisfied. You know what? Payment for sins is done. Salvation can be obtained. Eternal life can be given. And you know what God doesn't do? God doesn't look at those of us who receive the gift of eternal life and we haven't turned our life around enough. We haven't repented of enough sins. They're like, this, this isn't satisfactory. Listen, no, he's already been satisfied. And so for us to claim some kind of additional satisfaction that we gave God is only taking away from what Jesus Christ did. And so listen, I think you should repent of your sins after you get saved. I think you should do something for the Lord. But you know what a shame it is when preachers go around casting doubt about salvation or even perverting the gospel, changing the gospel in order to you know, get people to do something. No, you are messing with the message when you do that kind of thing. That's wrong. God saw what He did and was satisfied. Now, I get it. We didn't see that. We didn't see what went on at the cross. We can see what the Bible says about it. We can't see what was going on when Jesus was in hell. We can read about it in the Bible. But let me tell you something. When God looked at what He did, God said, I'm satisfied. This is, this is, this is enough. I'm satisfied. Atonement's been made. Price is, the price is paid. He's offered a eternal life to all. He said it's not of works. He says we're justified by faith. The judge shall live by faith. And so, you know what? We have no right to add anything to that. And we have no business throwing questions and doubts on people's salvation based on works. You're, you're messing everything up when you do that kind of thing. And so verse 12 says, therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Right there, you know, what we see when it says he made intercession for the transgressors. You know what that reminds me of? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While he's hanging on the cross bearing our sins he's making intercession for the sinners at that time and let me tell you something you know a lot of people wonder if their prayers are going to get answered sometimes well you know jesus prayer is going to you think god's not going to answer jesus prayer god's going to answer jesus prayer and if he prayed father forgive them so they know not what they do you know what god's going to do he's going to forgive them you know why because god was satisfied with what jesus did there on that cross that listen that prayer is going to get answered and gets answered all the time because it came from jesus and he satisfied god with his payment on the cross and so you have people out there who teach you know i preached about this a while back what some call the ransom theory that god was or that uh that jesus was satisfying satan's demand as payment for our sins but folks the truth is jesus did what was enough, and he did what he did to satisfy the demands of a holy and a just God. And you say, well, and, and notice what it says. It says God was satisfied. It doesn't say Satan was satisfied. It doesn't. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says no, God was satisfied. So I don't understand why God, you know, God can't. God just do whatever he wants to do. God can only do that which is holy and just. That's all God can do. God can't do that which is sinful. God can't do something that's unjust and unfair. And everything that he did to Jesus Christ, that was fair. That was what was deserved. And that's all God's able to, able to do. And so I do not believe that you know, Satan had any power in that situation. If he did have any power, it was only power given him by God. God was satisfied. Not, not Satan. And so the story of the death of Christ is in reality a representation of just how really bad we are sinners that's what it is and so the challenge that i want to i want to put out there for everyone today because i I understand there's a lot of people out there that are perverting the gospel muddying it up just confusing everyone and 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 i get you know and and i get that how pointless it is and how wrong it is to not even just teach a workspace salvation but a workspace justification I, i hate that kind of thing and while all that type of preaching is wicked I do. I feel like there's a lot of saved people out there, just trying to prove that you, you know, that you, there's no way you can just believe on Christ and still be wicked and go to heaven. There's a lot of people out there trying to teach that, you know, and that is that's wrong. We're all still wicked in the eyes of a holy God. Y'all understand that? That's why it's so dumb. You think you can just get saved and still be wicked and still go to heaven? Well, what makes you think you're not still wicked? Okay. I I need you to set the standard for me. Because the standard in the Bible seems to be Jesus Christ and none of us are there. So you know what? Yes, I do think you can get saved and still be wicked and still go to heaven. That's what I believe. Because we are. We're all still wicked. We all still have problems. And I'm sick of preachers out there preaching junk, confusing people on that. But you know what? Here's just kind of a challenge to throw out to everybody. Can we not try to prove just how wicked a saved person can be? I I feel like some people's method of proving you could still be wicked and still go to heaven is I'm going to prove it. I'm going to just be so stinking wicked. And wait, do you all still see me there in heaven? I don't think that's the message we're supposed to be getting from that i don't think that's what the bible you know you you know what the bible is doing when it shows us how we can still be sinful and christ will still make intercession for us it's trying to comfort us god's doing that out of comfort god's doing that out of love because god wants us to rest in him god wants us to have hope in him that god wants us to have that peace and that assurance because he is a good and loving god and because he did in fact pay sins in full but at the same time, I'm here today telling you, let's not prove just how wicked you can be. Let's try to be godly. Let's try to do right. And, so, and you know what? If, we ha- if you have somebody that's trying to prove just how wicked a saved person can be, you know what? It's not wrong for us as individuals. It's not wrong for us as a church to say, you know what? I don't have anything to do with them. If somebody is like, well, you know, you know this church are trying to throw me out just because, you know, I'm you know, selling cocaine Listen, I can't show a Bible verse that shows you sell cocaine, lose your salvation. I can't can't show that verse. But let me tell you, I don't want to go to church with you. I don't think we should have to go to church with you. You start getting involved in human trafficking. Hey, you become a customer for human traffickers with your pornography and all that kind of junk. Understand, that's all one business in the same. You know what? I don't think we should have to go to church with people like that. I don't, I, don't think, I don't think we're required to do that kind of thing. I didn't tell you you're going to lose your salvation. I'm telling you, we don't want to have anything to do with you. You need to repent. You need to get right. Or you need to get out of here. I, I don't think we should fellowship with people like that. The Bible says in Colossians 3.13, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. I know that verse. But you know, let me tell you, you, know, you can't forgive somebody when they're not willing to admit guilt listen christ forgives sinners but are people who do not come to him for forgiveness are they going to get it No. no they have to come to him for forgiveness they have to come to him for salvation and we need to make sure that we do that we need to make sure we have people that are you know we ought to be a people who are loving who are like christ the bible does say in philippians 2 4 Look not every man on his own thing, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not Robert to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And let me tell you, well, nothing that we see in there is a command for salvation. You know what? I do think it's okay. And I do believe it is a command for the church. You know what he's doing? You need to have the same mind that Jesus Christ has. Just like Jesus Christ thought about other people, you need to think about other people too. Just like Jesus Christ put our needs above His own needs, you need to put your needs above other people's needs too. And I'm, I'm tired of all these people out there. I'm tired of carnal Christians. I'm tired of just these new evangelical trendy types as I like to call them. That every time you bring up uncomfortable commands that are in the Bible, uncomfortable commands that are given to the church, they start bringing up, they, they try to distract you by talking about how salvation is not of works. Well aware of that. We're not talking about that. You know, these legalistic churches, you know, preaching, following these commandments, talking about standards, talking about living godly. You know, my righteousness is in Jesus Christ. We're not talking about how to get saved. You know what we're doing? You know, these commands that Paul gave, these are commands that are given to a church. And you know what? As a church... It's okay for us to have expectations from people who are claiming to be followers of Christ. It's okay for us to push people and to provoke people to love and good work. And it's okay for us to separate from people who don't want to do any of these things. And the Bible is the Bible's filled with passages showing how salvation does not come from our works and wicked people love to take those passages and use them as justification we're teaching that it's legalistic to try to preach sin out of the church. That's not, that's not the case at all. There is, every time they do that, they 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 distract. And churches should always teach people to work. Uh, Acts two thirty twenty thirty-four. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. And I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how He said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you know what? If it's a church, we tell people, you ought to labor. You ought to do some work. You ought to support the weak. You ought to give. You ought to do those things like that. You know what? We're not being legalistic. We're not adding to the gospel. These are commands for a church. And folks, we could I could go on and on, and I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to go any more examples of just challenges in the Bible for God's people, there are so many commands for God's people. There are so many calls to live godly, to to follow the commands of the Scriptures. But the truth is, though, even without all those specific commands from men like Paul to exhort people to do certain things, shouldn't Isaiah 53 be enough? What motivates you? That's the time. What, what motivates, what's your motivation? What motivates you to be godly? What motivates you to come to church? What is it? Because, you know, as a pastor, I, you know, I'm not interested in just guilt tripping people. I'm not interested. I, I don't, I don't feel like being a parent and spanking people, you know, figuratively speaking, when they get out of line, you know, I, I'm not saying I'm not going to do, you know, bring down the hammer if I have to bring down the hammer for something. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you know, as a as an under-shepherd, you know, Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. It's part of my job to try to help people fall in love with him. And the truth is, I think Isaiah, 50, Isaiah 53 is one of the best motivating scriptures in all the Bible. Do you need to be threatened with hell to do right? Because, you know, I can't do that because there's nowhere in the Bible where I can do that. But, you know, you should be able to be inspired by Isaiah 53. When you look at what Jesus did, folks, why do we have to, why do we have to twist people's arms to get them to serve the God of Isaiah 53? The the man Isaiah 53 is talking about that went through all those things for you. Why is it hard to get some people to be obedient to him? Why is it hard to get people to do things that please him. We understand. We're going to heaven. But did you know that Old Testament law? Not only, you know, we also learn what God is pleased with. We learn what he doesn't like. We learn what he hates. And so, you know, why as, as somebody who God did so many things for? Why would we not look at those things? And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to go do those things. And that's what I know. That's what I want as a pastor. I want our church to become more godly. And and just like this morning, we talked about having goals. We talked about having a motivator. We talked about trying to make some spiritual resolutions. At the end of the day, we have to have something motivating us. We have to have something that's pushing you. If you all are going to grow, if I'm going to grow spiritually this year, we we need something to motivate us. And... I don't know. I just felt like Isaiah 53 is one of the most motivational passages in the world. I don't believe God wants, you know, necessarily using guilt trip methods, fear methods. We're supposed to use love. It's the goodness of God that leads to leads us to repentance. And I just can't think of a passage anywhere in the Bible that explains the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God better than isaiah chapter 53 and i'm telling you right now i think if everyone in here took some time to think about that passage meditate on that passage just think about what was done for you try to picture these things in the way that i've tried to describe them to you tonight i don't know i think it's going to make it a little more difficult for you to give in to the flesh and your your flesh is never going to shut up ladies and gentlemen it's never going to shut up, but we've got to let these things ring in our ears. We've got to let these passages be in our minds we've got to let them be in our hearts because if we don't have these things in our, in our hearts, we're not, we're going to go carnal. Yeah. We are going to, It's just, it is a natural thing. The reason we're seeing so many churches go this exact same carnal direction. You know why? It's because gravity, you know, what goes up must come down. And let me tell you, what's not, what's not spiritual will be carnal. And if we get away from that, which is spiritual, we're going to go carnal every single time without even trying. It takes a force. It takes some kind of effort. It takes some kind of energy to make something go up. And it takes effort. It takes some kind of force to get us to be spiritual. And so uh, really all I want to do in this message tonight is just use probably the most beautiful passage in all the Bible to just motivate you to want to be more like Christ, to want to serve Him, to just give something back uh, just out of thankfulness. Not out of obligation. We hear people's preachers say it all the time, and I know what they're trying to say, and it's, it's just not good, but it's like, you know, you owe God your life. Well, actually, if it was free... We don't owe them anything, do we? You know, we, and, and everybody understands that. Okay, we're not in debt in, in, in that way because it was free. It was really free. You know, and that's why we're going to go to heaven either way. But you're still pretty sorry if you don't give anything back. If you don't do something. And I, I, I hope that everybody this year, I hope this will be everyone's best, biggest year for walking with god i hope i hope everyone gets a little closer to god this year if everybody does that there is no doubt every one of you will be blessed our church will be blessed we've got to do this and so i hope this will help tonight so let's pray dear lord thank you so much for uh, what you did for us thank you for coming to this earth and taking our stripes healing us lord and uh lord just what an amazing uh chapter the bible this is i Honestly, for the life of me, I just cannot even imagine how anyone could not read this passage and not realize that this is the Word of God and that it is inspired. And Lord, we thank you for uh, giving it to us and uh, all that it reveals to us. And I pray, Lord, that you'll uh, work on people's hearts. You'll motivate every one of us to live for you and become more like you. In your name we pray. Amen.